Hello and welcome to this special episode of Milwaukee's Tailgate Podcast. Uh, I am joined today by Brad Ford. How's it going, Brad? Oh, it's going fantastic. How about you, Ryan? I'm doing pretty good. We just got done with a really fantastic interview with Fangraph's Eric Longenhagen. And yes. he is their, what do you say, lead prospect analyst is the correct, correct term for that. Yeah, let's get that right. And we did a, a thorough interview with him, and we're going to play part of it here on our regular podcast stream available to everybody. Uh, we're going to be talking specifically about his book and some about the Brewer system, but the full interview runs uh, more like an hour and 15 minutes. And the entire thing is available to our uh, Patreon sponsors through Patreon. If you are a Ball and Glove member level, you receive the monthly minor league extras. So we're going to put part of it up here. And then if you want to listen to the whole thing, you can go ahead and listen to it through Patreon if that is something that you value and, and would like to do. So speaking of which, we also talked to Eric kind of at the beginning or at the end of this thing and wanted to mention up front before we get too far into it that uh, Fangraphs is having a tough time through this time. And I'm a person that uses Fangraphs a lot for their statistics, especially, and they have a lot of fantastic writers there, and I've enjoyed their podcast for years now. And so I really value it and think that it is something that is important to me and I would like to see continue. And they have been asking people if they have the means and if you are in a position to do this sort of thing, that if you could purchase an ad-free membership, it would really help them get through these tough times because with the pause in baseball, their traffic is way lower than it normally would be. And they rely on that to, uh, to pay a lot of their bills. So they're having a tough time. And even if you're not able to do that, one thing that you can do that would help them in a, a small way, but still important if a lot of people do this is to go to fan graphs on something like a daily basis and, and click through. And I've been trying to do that in the last few weeks as well, since I found out, you know, how much they were struggling and it's not a waste of your time. There's so much good content there between the writing specifically. Eric's work is fantastic on the prospect side and so many other things they are currently talking about. Uh, they're doing a whole sim season of OOTP that features the brewers. And I know you've been watching along with that, right, Brad? Yes. It's very interesting and, and kind of scratches that itch that you need for baseball. So, and we'll address this again at the end of the podcast as well and give him a chance to talk about that. But the primary thing that we're going to be focusing on here is he and Kylie McDaniel, Eric and Kylie wrote a book called Future Value, which is now out and available in stores. So if you would like to read that, and I know, Brad, you've already taken a peek at it, right? Yeah, I got an advanced copy. I was expecting... Based on just fan graphs, I mean, their writing is fantastic, but, you know, it's a data-driven website. So it's expecting a lot of data, kind of it to be a thicker read about baseball, something I'd still be very interested in, but something I thought maybe uh, more passive fans wouldn't love. But no, it is actually, it reads so simply. It has a lot of great anecdotes uh, that you'll hear about where we they talk about what happens inside draft rooms, what happens inside scouting departments. If you've ever wanted to peek inside that, it is just fantastic for those stories alone. And there are dozens in every chapter, it feels like. So uh, yeah, it is just an, a super easy to read, great book that actually I feel made me more intelligent about the way I approach baseball. I mean, that honestly, that uh, 
you know, I learned things from this book while also, you know, getting just some fun stories about like players being discovered like Wander Franco. They even talk a little bit about Christian Yelich's discovery. So there, and there's a lot of Brewers relevant information in there. They have great quotes about like Scooter Jeanette being a uh, hitting savant. Uh, I don't want to spoil anything, but there's stories in there about him and how he approaches hitting. Uh, and those stories alone make it so fun. And then you add on the knowledge that you get about the scouting process. It kind of gives you a how-to to be a scout. And then on top of that brings you inside player development departments for Major League Baseball teams. Fantastic read with a ton of very valuable information any fan can put to use. So what do you think, Brad? Should we toss it over to the interview and do that? A quick apology first. Uh, I asked a question by one of our fans, Jim Guler, uh, who is the manager of BrewerFan.net, one of the greatest communities about Brewers baseball that you can join. Uh, sorry I missed mentioning your name in the question, Jim, but we did ask your question, so I hope that's uh, more than good enough, and thank you for getting it in. All right, well, yeah. So without any further ado, let's toss it over to uh, the excerpt of that interview. And once again, if you would like to listen to the entire interview, that is available to Patreon subscribers on patreon.com uh, for people that are at the ball and glove level and higher. We are pleased now to be joined by lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, Eric Longenhagen. How's it going, Eric? About as well as it, it can be considering the circumstances, right? Like healthy, uh, and those around me are too, to this point. So yeah, I can't ask for more than that right now. How about you guys? Yeah, I'm same. And I'm thankful for it every day. I got to try to remember that because who knows where this is going to take us, but yeah, I got to remember that as long as my family is doing well and all that, it, it is a big load off. Cause I know not everybody's lucky enough to be in that situation. Yeah. Got to take, uh, got to take, a step back and uh, at this time appreciate stuff like that. So yes, absolutely. Would absolutely rather that there be baseball right now, but we'll definitely uh, cash my, my chips in if it means that I get through this healthy. And so do the ones close to me. Yep. So we are talking to you on the eve of the release of your book. And this is probably about the weirdest book release that uh, anybody's been through here, but uh, you wrote a book called future value about scouting with uh, Kylie McDaniel, the, the, dearly departed Kylie McDaniel, who's now gone over to ESPN. But at the time, you guys were working together at Fangraphs, correct? Yeah. And then there was a blood war um, <laughs> and I and I won and pushed Kylie out. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he's look, Kylie, clearly you surprised to see me on this uh, or hear me on this pod because, you know, of who you sent to my house. But look, just do a better job hiring your contract killers, Kylie. <laughs> It's very no expense. You got that ESPN money now. No, yeah, like Kylie and I have. Uh, we were lucky enough to do this a few times where um, we we got to work together, and it was pretty immediate the first time he and I spoke to one another. Is a conversation I still remember that that he and I were going to be able to communicate uh, effectively with one another, and so yeah, I'm thankful to have spent the uh, the time that we had together working, and this is sort of our page baby to some extent. <laughs> Yeah, and you were saying that you finished it just right as all the news started to happen with Kylie leaving. So that was it was like almost right in that exact moment that that started to happen. Yeah, we finished the manuscript, and then the next day, ESPN called Kylie and said, "Hey, uh, you know, we need a prospect analyst, and we're starting our interview process. Are you interested?" And so, yeah, it was a that was a whirlwind twenty four hours. We were in New York City for Fangraphs event when um, we wrapped the book, and and he got his. 
he got his life-changing phone call. And you guys had both you been, tell me about it. you guys had both been, uh, worked with Keith law there, uh, previously doing prospect analysis stuff before you went out on your own and went elsewhere. Yeah. For periods of time, Kylie and I both wrote underneath Keith about mostly draft stuff over at the dot com, the insider at the time, which is now ESPN plus and yeah, another guy with, you know, whom I've just had knocked down, drag him out, vicious, <laughs> uh, falling out with. No, like, you know, this is, again, right place, right time. Met Keith in Charlottesville uh, years, many years ago. We were just both at East Carolina versus UVA sometime in chilly February weekend. Watched Jeff Hoffman and freshman Connor Jones and Nathan Kirby. Uh, oh, Nathan and, Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> The, the rest the, of pieces are very scathed. If you're unscathed, then Nathan Kirby is scathed. <laughs> um, another person got to spend a couple hours with, and it was just clear. Oh, we're like thinking about this and talking about this in ways that are pretty similar, and we'll be, you know, eased, grease the wheels for working with with him professionally as well. Which you know, Keith wrote the foreword for the book, which Kylie and I are both thankful for doing for him doing. So, yeah. We both we both were under the ESPN umbrella for a little while. Um, all right. So how we're going to do this is we're going to start by talking about your book and we'll kind of as we go on with that, move that into a little bit of Brewers discussion and then go on. We have some questions from listeners that they wanted to pose to you. So we'll work those in towards the end there. If you could basically just give us what was your elevator pitch for this book when you were shopping it around? I'm assuming you had to shop it around to at least a couple different publishers. Like what was the elevator pitch for the book? No, the the opposite. The publisher came to us and said, we think this book needs to be written. We think that um, the state of player evaluation in the game has changed enough that we'd want someone to examine that. And uh, they sort of scoured the market and decided that Kylie and I, they thought, were the the best two equipped to do it, which is very flattering. And so, yeah, that's how it came together. We were actually approached by Triumph Books. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've, I don't know that I've ever heard the story told that way before. Like, yeah, that's a, um, yeah, that's I suppose it happens, but it's I, that is different. I will say that in explaining it to folks since then, Kylie and I have both sort of taken different avenues to talk about it. And the book, the tone of the book shifts, you know, chapter by chapter. What we're talking about does change quite a bit. Uh, you could hack up the book into little bits, and it would feel like, um, you know, uh, different essays like from totally different books. You know, like to me, it's kitchen confidential without the drugs and the sex. <laughs> uh, to Kylie, it is a spiritual successor to Moneyball at a sort of examining that dichotomy, right? The push, the push and pull of scouts and stats and how we go about assessing players about 20 years after Moneyball came out. So, um, so yeah, it's got draft stories. It's got, uh, you know, you look behind the curtain of what Kylie and I are did at Fangraphs and are still doing at our respective publications now, uh, how we kind of go about looking at and thinking about uh, players this day and age and how we go about solving our problem of one or two people trying to look at a global scale of baseball prospect and knowing about every single relevant one um, with that amount of depth, uh, you know, presents you a problem that you have to go about trying to solve. And so some of that stuff is in the book as well. So I was lucky enough to get an advanced copy, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think it's a book for anyone who has interest in how teams run their professional development programs, 
or even if you have a little bit of interest in scouting or even becoming a scout, it's a great tool for that. Uh, is there a specific lesson about the value of scouting or boots on the ground that you hope readers walk away with from this book? Yeah, the importance of context. Scouts give you a situational, developmental, very like humanistic uh, perspective on the context of a player's development and well-being that can have an impact on their performance that a lot of the tech is measuring. Uh, but the tech cannot tell you, like, so the, ex the example that I'll, I'll use here is like Lewin Diaz. Okay. Lewin Diaz was uh, part of the Sergio Romo trade last summer, Marlins twins. Diaz had a bad 2018. He was, you know, a promising young teenage first base prospect, played a couple of years, 2018 stats way, way down. Uh, and then 2019 performance bounced back up. Ultimately, he's traded for, you know, a middle relief piece at that point in an older Sergio Romo. Anyone who's using a model-heavy form of pro player evaluation has sees the stats, you know, sees the exit velos, all the underlying stuff. You have your scouting reports, too, that, you know, show the, the, the dip and, uh, you know, the tail back up in 2019. But unless you have a scout who knows why uh, 2018 Lewin Diaz was bad, you, you can't just ignore that year. But if you have a scout who knows, hey, the Twins asked this guy to lose weight. He took it really seriously. He took it too seriously. He got skinny. He got weak. This is where the dip in performance comes from. And then in 2019, he came to camp uh, rebuilt in a way. And so if we're looking at multiple years of statistical performance, that 2018 year just needs to be w wash that away. Okay. There's a reason that he was bad. That has nothing to do with his skill set. It has to do with what was going on with him physically at that time that we no longer need to worry about. And we should just be focused on 2019. It helps to have a scout who can tell you, Hey, my source is in the org. I've learned this from being around the complex, whatever it is. This is why Lewin Diaz sucked in 2018. And we should not sweat that. And still, you know, consider acquiring him. Like this is the type of thing that scouts give you that uh, a pro model probably does not. That that type of specific situational context. And I still think that having that is very valuable, because I think where that applies is pretty wide ranging, player to player. Um, I, I think it's it's worth having scouts gathering that type of intel in mass. So how much is your average amateur scout at this point expected to be able to interact with advanced data and all the various tools that are out there, TrackMan and RepSoto and all the various things that are there now for them to be able to use? It's, it's varied org to org and sometimes scout to scout. Uh, some of it is, is not what the scout is expected to know and use as far as evaluating the player. And some of it is just what they've deduced and picked up and incorporated into their own process from being in the draft room or from, from having amateur meetings with their org that also includes the analysts who are, you know, taking their turn at the table and discussing the players as, as the scouts go around uh, too. So, you know, the scouts are having, they're interacting with people in the front office who are in charge of analyzing players that way. Some of them are more curious uh, and autodidactic than others and are seeking that knowledge to apply to their own evaluations and others are more hesitant 
and the team needs to marry the two uh, at a level above the scout. So it's pretty mixed. I would say that a lot of the forward thinking teams, as they hire new scouts, uh, are looking for people who can kind of like get you get you someone who can do both type thing, where they want people who don't have a that learning curve on the on the data the, the data side, um, that are already versed in that and can do some amount of visual evaluation as well. In the book, you actually mentioned that looking at TrackMan specifically, that MLB is moving to Hawkeye versus TrackMan. Just from a standpoint of that, what advantage does that offer? Right. So, you know, there's been a learning curve. The implementation of this technology has caused some problems, right? Um, TrackMan is radar technology. Hawkeye uses a mix of PitchFX's optical tracking, and Hawkeye is kind of a mix of both. There's more cameras, there's more tech, uh, and you know that's the long and short of it. And it's just more accurate from a where the ball is standpoint. Like the rate of error for trackman units in certain parks is like much higher than you'd expect. Uh, they do have to be calibrated. Sometimes they can be miscalibrated. I'm sifting through some data now as I work on the Rangers prospect list for uh, for the website. Like some of the data I was sent is kind of fishy from like a pitching perspective, such that I wonder if a couple of the Rangers trackman units in the minors were miscalibrated. So the data hasn't always been clean with the trackman stuff. So that's part of it too. And then Hawkeye, ideally in MLB's eyes, and again, this is all theoretical, like based on what uh, the tennis industry has set of Hawkeye, which they use to do their line calls, uh, that like Hawkeye's accuracy is such that it should allow Major League Baseball to do a robo zone um, for balls and strikes at some point in the next handful of years. And so I think that there's just more confidence in the very, very tippy top of the industry that has this type of decision-making power to say, no, in all 30 Major League parks, instead of TrackMan units, we are now going to have Hawkeye. They just think that it's more accurate. Yeah, so obviously the role of the scout is was already rapidly changing, but teams are now going so far away from, like, most teams aren't really running uh, Major League Scouting anymore, right? Advanced Scouting, that's largely gone to video. It is certainly, uh, I do know some teams, including some progressive teams, who you'd be shocked to know, send in people to do advanced Big League Scouting in person. Some of it is obviously for reasons that go beyond just the, hey, Rollis Chapman slider is pretty good. Like <laughs> it is watching how teams go about their business to see what you can learn about how they, you know, sign stealing stuff in the traditional sense. Um, so some okay. of it is definitely that, you know, part of it too. Stuff that's not on video that the broadcast is not capturing that has to do with what's going on in the dugout. But uh, but yeah, you're right. Mostly now, if we're evaluating players, it's less about what a person is seeing, and and more about what we know from their performance, which is now measured by more stuff than it was uh, ever before. And on the minor league side, teams are collecting more video and data and yeah. using that more heavily. And even on the amateur side now, there are teams I know from reading other things that uh, there are teams like the Astros that just send out like a, what, a platoon of young interns to capture video of amateurs all over the place. And that's their primary yeah. data gathering it had been for a little while there, yes, where the Astros had Edgertronic guys, basically. Um, the Astros fired most of their scouts over the course of two large cullings. And the, after the first wave, 
they hybridized the scouts that were left over so that some of them who had been doing pro switched over and did some amateur stuff for a while. And some of them who had just been doing amateur stuff did a mix. And then they got rid of most of the rest of those, excuse me, in the second culling. And yeah, it was a lot of guys walking around with suitcases, you know, big cases for these edutronic cameras that they're setting up at ballparks all over the place. You know, some remote locations. Like I went to Yakima, Washington to watch Corbin Carroll uh, and Carter Young. Carter Young's now a freshman at Vanderbilt. Uh, they played a doubleheader at Yakima, and there's, you know, someone with an Edgertronic trying to get it to be stable on the back of, like, a weird aluminum-topped dugout. Like, it's – there's more of that stuff going on on the amateur side. I think the Astros are hiring some scouts again now that there's a new GM. But, yeah, definitely high-speed videos in particular is a thing that teams are interested in. You can calculate bat speed. You can calculate spin rates um, in places where there's no track man. There's no tech um, based on – the video it's stuff that we toy around with at Fangraphs um for some extent and uh yeah that's occupying a bigger part of the pie too obviously it's more of a problem quote unquote this is definitely a problem for scouts and their job security uh, in places where the infrastructure to install the technology exists so you're less likely to be worried about losing your job if you're a scout in a foreign country in the Dominican Republic or in Australia or in Taiwan where the technology is just less likely to exist than it is here where, you know, most division, big division ones programs have a, have a track man unit or something like that at this point. Yeah. But the rate of growth is really, really fast on that too. I mean, I was at a game at Chatham last year on the Cape and they had multiple setups. I don't even know what all the equipment was, but they had multiple, you know, guys in polo shirts, intern looking guys and, Oh, yeah. feeding data out of the thing and this was just at a you know a random chatham game in july last year and they had a whole big setup of multiple units and i'm not even edutronic probably would that have been one of the ones that is way up in the it goes way up the pole there that- are so many the edutronic is like a blue it's a camera that sits on a tripod in front of a person typically in the stands and it's got a blue box as it's back and then the lens is black coming off of the front. That's what the Edgertronics look like. But there are all kinds of third-party vendors who are doing stuff like hit tracks and flight scope and Rapsodo. And like the list is pretty endless of these third-party tech corps who are in the player evaluation space, not just in baseball, but in golf. Like TrackMan makes a lot of money, more, probably more of their nut on golf uh, than they do on baseball. And the way MLB has policed it has changed over time. Now teams are subject to more sharing regulations, whereas before there was a bit of an arms race going on where you could buy a unit for a college and have exclusive access to that college's data. Now you're forced to share that stuff, and it has really changed that landscape as well. It's far less lucrative for those third-party vendors now. Uh, that you know, TrackMan would have gladly installed another unit at a junior college that a team was willing to pay for, but now everyone who comes through the College of Southern Nevada, uh, which you know the Cubs I think used to own exclusively that data, um, now everyone gets a look at that, and so there's less incentive for teams to pay for that type of thing. Uh, so there might be some slowing on that end, how how quickly that stuff is spreading. It's really getting down to the point where individuals have to pay to play in front of one of those types of, you know, some of this technology so that they generate data for themselves to advocate for themselves 
in the draft market. So yeah, it's definitely a thing that's shifting as the guidance around how MLB is governing it changes too, in addition to just what's going on independent of that. Teams understanding what's meaningful from a metric perspective and then hoping to work with those vendors to try to have access to that data and generate it for their players and players that they have access to. So when reading Future Value, I think uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, besides the 2080 Batman scale, which was phenomenal, was all Thank the anecdotes. Uh, you know, it's just story after story from scouts, uh, directors of player development. And it's great to actually get a look inside draft rooms or inside their process. I think my favorite came in the chapter about scouting the international market when I trained our surprise scouts. And I think Kylie was there with their first look at Wander Franco. Did you have a particular favorite story out of all the ones that appear in the book? My favorite stories are ones that didn't end up in the book for good reasons. Um, <laughs> like... I've got stories about like players putting their junk in the postgame spread as a prank. <laughs> uh, I've got, you know, stories like about uh, pitchers, you know, busting, busting the balls of their fellow pitchers who don't throw hard that are pretty funny and stuff like that. The Wanda Franco story in the book is, is particularly strong. The Jameis Winston stuff in the book is also interesting to me. The Cardinals draft room story about how they ended up with uh, Trajan Fletcher last year is also interesting. That came together really late. They were all set to take somebody else. And they thought about taking Trajan Fletcher in the first round. And Fletcher was such a unique evaluation because he had reclassified late. He had changed schools several times. Teams did not have team, the window with which teams had to evaluate him was compromised the way that it is in the 2020 draft. You know, like he just had fewer looks at Trajan Fletcher because of how late he reclassified as a 2019 grad instead of 2020. And so just like candidly, not all the teams were comfortable with taking him for several reasons, and the Cardinals did their work. Fletcher's a Boris client, so they had signability concerns as well. And so there was a lot of there was a lot of work to be done. Ultimately they thought about him in the first round, decided they weren't comfortable doing it. And then between when they passed on him in round one and when they picked in round two, uh, the GM, John Moseliak, got in a room and figured out a number that was workable in their draft pool uh, and, like, last minute came into the into the room and and told the scouting staff, like, hey, you know, don't draft that college pitcher whose magnet you're about to put under our team name on the on the draft board. Like, we have a deal done with Trajan Fletcher. They were just about to call in uh, a different pick. And so, yeah, like, we could probably do a trilogy of, of just scout stories and um, or, you know, like a podcast series just talking to scouts about, gosh, decades of, of dealing with, you know, young. Imp- imp- like, just think about how dumb we were at age 17, 18, 19, 20. And all you do every year is interact with, with a couple dozen of you know, alpha dog athlete types who are that dumb, like just with youth uh, and just the naivete and inexperience that all of us have, um, except in the body of an elite athlete at that age is uh, the potential for failure and uh, for embarrassment is, is immeasurable. And so all these, all these people who have scouted and been part of baseball for a long time have so many stories about their own misgivings and, uh, and mishaps and, uh, it's it's really was fun to be part of, but the, the Cardinals draft story was very topical at the time because like I missed on Trajan Fletcher too, right? Like I am because of where I'm from. I'm from Pennsylvania originally, 
Kylie and I wouldn't exclusively break up the country into parts for each of us. Uh, but like I would go home to visit family in the Northeast and do my run in the spring before the draft. And I went home and saw my fam and Noah song and, uh, the relevant Northeast prospects at the time and just decided to punt on Trey Fletcher because other teams were telling me that that's what they were doing. It was a particularly rainy spring in the Northeast as well. And, uh, you know, I, we had him, him pretty low on the board. Just was not a guy we were interested in based on our looks at him on the showcase circuit. And, uh, but some teams are way, way, way in. And the Cardinals in particular think that they got like an uber stud from a tools perspective who is just raw with the bat. And they think he's got a chance to be a star. Whereas other teams are just like, no, not for us, too scary. Um, and the gap is rarely that big. And so this, that story in the book sticks out to me for that reason. Yeah. So the information gap has really narrowed between teams at this point, would you say? Probably, yes, especially, you know, with things like the with data sharing, especially um, everyone's got access to the same bucket of stuff. What you do with it is a little bit different, but especially on the pitching side, I feel like most of the teams have caught up to what uh, is meaningful. What what from the data um, are we looking to draw uh, from like, you know, everyone kind of knows now what matters pitching wise more so than we did before. We have a great idea now of why Colin Poche's fastball is so unhittable even though it only lives in like the 92 to 94 mile per hour range. We know why uh, Kyle Wright is not why that's uh, despite the fact that he's like four to seven, why he gets knocked around a little bit. Like these are things that everyone kind of knows now at this point. So we've talked about it here. We talked about, and it's talked about a lot in the book where you and Kylie go and talk about corporate front offices, cutting scouting staffs, and relying on models. Every time I read or hear something like that, I just like, oh, that's what David Stearns is doing in Milwaukee. You hear about Scott's kind of fired in bulk. You hear about that. Do you know what the Brewers' current situation is in terms of player development and scouting? And can you give us a little insight into that? So I know some. It is it is a closely guarded thing. They've made some restructuring changes a couple times now over the last few years. Some of the cross-checkers were let go or repurposed in some way. Uh, more and more on the pro side have been let go. It does seem like they're going to Astro to some degree, at least. You would think that, considering how smart David Stearns and the rest of that front office is, uh, that they will go about it in a way that is not so careless about the PR and the optics of it uh, in a way that the Astros were, because, you know, the way the Astros went about it was kind of petulant in a way that the rest of baseball then hated them. And so, of course, the rest of baseball was willing to say, hey, here's all the bad stuff we know about the Astros. Whereas, you know, if you're the Brewers, you don't want to tow that. You don't want to even tow that line. So um, there are definitely people in the org who are, I would classify as, not that this is a pejorative, but old school, right? Like Ray Montgomery is a huge voice in that org, and he should be uh, considering his track record of acquiring players. And he doesn't strike me as someone who'd be super stoked on a scoutless model. The other, uh, you know, like, and again, like Milwaukee's people have been cagey with me particularly about this type of stuff. The other changes I'm privy to are got the arms are coming into camp sooner and throwing harder sooner in the program like earlier in the spring the minor leaguers were coming in and starting to throw and throw hard uh earlier than most orgs would have them do so uh you know that's i think that's the um 
that's the driveline like model. So they're, you know, they're doing that type of stuff now too. And I think um, it's evidenced by their draft history here uh, recently that they're looking for, and I think in the, the pro acquisitions as well, the brewers are interested in guys who have different, you know, looks quote unquote, the Freddie Peralta's Alex Claudio's Clayton Andrews guys who who have a weird delivery. Um, I think there's value in uniqueness, and I think the Brewers think that too. And it's been, you know, pretty clear based on what they've done on the pro and amateur sides that that's the thing they care about is, is your delivery weird? Do we present hitters with an odd look? Is there something that makes your stuff play better than it should uh, because of you know, a mechanical oddity that's going on here? And so I think that that's going on as well. Yeah, so speaking of that, we've talked on here a lot, and we had – we had Jeffrey Paternoster on last month and we're talking to him about this a little bit. And basically Ethan small, what we understand is that he was largely picked because he put up some crazy numbers on some advanced uh, technology, like his spin rates and things that he was doing graded out really, really well. And basically like, how good do you think he can be? Uh, based on the fact that he really wasn't like a guy that scouts were overly in love with. If you look at the more scouting heavy lists, he wasn't a guy that was super popular or high up on those, but he, he apparently grades up very well in some of these advanced things. How good can that package work out? So, yeah. So let's talk about specifically Ethan Small's traits. That's the phrase that pays now is, you know, this guy's fastball has traits. Uh, that enable it to play up even though he sits like 88 to 92. From a spin rate perspective, and I'm looking at uh, the data I have here, it's not crazy. He's I've got him averaging about 2,200 RPMs, which is big league average. But if you go to the Fangraphs, you know, if you're listening to this and go to the Fangraphs YouTube page, I've got video of Small from his pro debut. From a spin axis and spin efficiency standpoint, seam uniformity, the pure backspin he creates on the ball because of like what his arm angle is. That's that's a fastball that is you know spin efficient, is going to have this this like type directional movement as it tra- traverses toward the plate. It's going to have that carrier rise or Z breaker. You know the terminology around this is it varies person to person. But yeah, this is what Ethan Small does. He's got this fastball that plays uh, way, way above its velocity because of how spin efficient it is, its approach angle, all these other traits. And he's got a plus changeup. He's got to find a good breaking ball. So how he goes about doing that, you know, I don't know. It's tough to teach guys to spin it this way, right? Um, Drivelines research has found that spin for fastballs and breaking balls is not really a malleable trait unless a guy is totally clueless as to hold and release the ball, uh, what he's able to do from a spin perspective is more or less just sort of hardwired into him. So we'll see what they can do with Small. I think, you know, like the best evidence in Ethan Small's favor is that he carved the SEC for three years with a 40 fastball on velocity. Now, the fastball was, you know, in reality, it's better than that, and there are other reasons why. Um, But, yeah, like the title of the piece that I wrote that included Small is – let's find some Clayton Kershaw's to scale, right? Like here's part of why Clayton Kershaw's fastball has played so well for so long, even as he's lost velocity and also lives in the 88 to 91 range. His heater still plays, and this is why. And Small is almost like a mechanical clone for Kershaw, in my opinion. He just can't spin it like, like Clayton can. 
Oh, wow. So, and is there any chance you think that the vast ball velocity gets back to where it was before the Tommy John surgery? Because I know that he w- was touching mid-90s, like 95, 96 at times, right? I think that this is probably it. I think most most college arms, their velo dips in pro ball. It doesn't go up. You're pitching every fifth day instead of once a week. Uh, so, no, I wouldn't anticipate he, he ever throws that hard again, not on a regular basis. So the arms in the Brewer system are kind of filled with unique features, traits. At what point do you see very effective pitchers who maybe aren't overpowering right-handed starters and they start to hit your radar, uh, like uh, Dylan Bile, Noah Zavalos, uh, Max Lazar, uh, those type of candidates? When do you really focus on them and take them seriously? So some of them will pop up pretty early because the traits that I mentioned with small are measurable. Like I can, if a guy's performing, he's striking out a lot of players like Max Laser is, uh, even though he doesn't throw very hard, I start to go looking for why that might be. And that's where you can find, you know, go digging for stuff on spin axis and uh, release data that is meaningful and can influence what you think about those players. For the sidearm type guys, for like the really funky types, um, it's, you know, it's just something that they prove through performance at the upper levels. Like I'm not really going to buy into, um, the Alex Claudio type of reliever until they've, they've done this to, you know, double a triple a. Um, so some of the guys that you're specifically referring to, uh, like Dylan file who I've yet to examine with like, you know, the type of thoroughness he's he's a more of a secondary the secondaries are what's what's leading the day there laser is a spin axis like back spinning type guy so is aaron ashby like vertical arm slot types and yeah like uh i think it's pretty pervasive through the system and clearly something that the the org is prioritizing and it's something that depending on what the weirdness is whatever the trait may be uh, like alex bettinger alec bettinger this year was another one of those like the 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 spin direction is, is it's a, like a backspinning fastball, pure. So um, now that I know to look for that, that type of player is much easier to identify. But the funky like three quarters submarine sidearm type, uh, those guys still need to kind of prove it to me up through the upper levels. So when the Brewers first traded for the Luis Urias, I went back and listened to an appearance you had on Padres EBT uh, back in November. Uh, on that show, you kind of talked about how you were and dangerous for looking at a kind of market inefficiency that you thought was there in high contact shortstops who maybe didn't have elite power or running and might have put Urias a little too high on your top 100 because of that. Can you explain your view on Urias now? And if you see him, you know, being a valid contributor for the Brewers, at especially a shortstop, which seems to not really be his position. Right. So Orgs definitely have different philosophies on who can play position X, Y, Z. There are teams out there who, like, really, you're going to put Max Muncy at second base. Um, so I think, and I think what we've seen Milwaukee experiment with Travis Shaw, Mike Moustakis, you know, these bigger body guys playing positions who you wouldn't typically think they could. I think that's evidence that they'd be more likely to stick someone who, in a vacuum, without shifting and, you know, just good defensive positioning in general, things that can hide some deficiencies. Um, I think the Brewers are a little bit more open-minded about who can play any infield spot. So I'd say that Urias is probably likely to see a, a lion's share of his reps there for the Brewers. 
Um, and just, you know, it's, he just doesn't have an absolute cannon that you're, you know, is typical of, of most good defensive shortstops. And that is primarily why, uh, typically he has not been seen as a fit there long-term and yeah, you're right. So I think for a while, the, uh, the elite contact middle infielder with marginal physical tools, especially power was undervalued by the industry, both public facing and not. And I think that's why we all kind of collectively missed on Jose Ramirez. It's why Mookie Betts was probably under the radar for too long and ultimately not stuffed as high as he needed to be by the public facing parts of the industry when all was said and done with him. There are countless examples of, of players like this we've undervalued. David Fletcher uh, with the Angels has been very good. Um, I think that some to some degree, and I'm probably guilty of this too, We've overcorrected on that. Some of uh, some of it was maybe not Urias. I still think we're kind of properly calibrated on Urias, although for a while I think we were too high. But like Vidal Brujan with the Rays, still feel really good about where I'm at on him. But Jose Devers with the Marlins tried to get out in front of that one early. Saw him in the fall league. Turns out I just think this guy is too small, too weak doesn't play to Capita Marcano in the Padre system. Another guy, he's so slight and skinny. I just think that, no, it's not going to work. So I still think there's some give and take on that stuff uh, with Urias. Do I think there's going to be real power? No, I think that, you know, the Padres uh, screwed with his swing and his approach a little bit towards the end there to try to get him to hit for more power. I'd rather he just take a high contact approach and put everything in play, try to have an elite contact rate, play a premium position. And even if you're not hitting for power, it's, you know, like what Luis Arias did. Go look at the wins above replacement for Luis Arias with the Twins in a small sample last year. Look at what, you know, uh, David Fletcher has done. And, you know, keep an eye on Nicky Lopez and Nick Madrigal and these other guys who make a ton of contact but have zero power. I think a lot of them are sneaky valuable. And I do think Arias is going to fit in that in that realm. But, you know, Orlando Arcia, I saw him a little bit this spring. I did see the Brewers Big Club this spring a couple times before things shut down. And, like, Arcia's still tantalizing, man. Like, he can still really pick it at short. He looks swole. He's hitting the ball to the opposite field with power, which is what he was doing during his peak prospect days when everyone, me included, thought he was a six. And so, like, I still think that he's got a chance to sneak up on us, but I do think Arias is probably the safer long-term bet of those two. And with Arcia, he's only, what, 25? And at the end of his development, he was really powered through that system as they needed a shortstop coming up pretty soon. So they needed someone to take over that role. So they really, I wonder how much, I mean, he's still young enough where you can see a sudden change in kind of his performance. So it's hard to lose hope on our profile, especially when you see flashes of everything that made him exciting before. Sure. I agree with you. And the that line that, that you just had there that he's he's still this age and they they kind of pushed him late because they needed a shortstop is exactly what Mariners fans would tell you about Ketel Marte today is they push this guy they hit the gas on his dev he wasn't ready physically he's now grown into this you know elite athlete Ketel Marte you go back and look at some of how little power he hit for uh, some of his early days in the big leagues and then look at his body now like he's He's built like, uh, you know, an NFL tailback. Like, it's ridiculous now. So this is part of the challenge of evaluating these players, too. Some of this doesn't matter, right? Like, if RC is on your big league club for six years, 
And then at the end of that six-year window, he starts to really develop into his own. That's less meaningful to your club, especially with a cost-conscious team like the Brewers. It's less meaningful to your club than it would be if those peak years came during your six years of team control. And so that's the thing that we're thinking about, too, at Fangraphs, is if your peak years are in your late 20s when your body's fully developed, and this guy's peak years are in his early to mid-20s when I have team control over him, I'd rather have that guy rather than the dude who's going to, you know, be a stud after he's hit free agency, you know, like, so those windows kind of play with how I think about players now. And RC is one of those guys where it sucks that these first couple of years of his career, he's doing nothing offensively. And so I should, in my, the scope of my work where I'm trying to evaluate those first six years uh, for the reason I just outlined, it kind of penalizes him, even though his long-term, his trajectory as a player is probably more interesting than that. Well, we can't thank you enough for coming on and, and doing this with us. Uh, I wanted to give you another chance. So want to mention that future value is out now when you're listening to this and you can grab that. That's by both Eric and Kylie McDaniel. And also you did kind of allude to it, but I want to give you a moment because I know it's been a big topic of conversation on all the Fangraphs podcast and whatnot that Fangraphs is struggling to try to keep everything going. And what are some things that people can do if they want to help support Fangraphs through this? I know that people are in different situations right now in terms of money, but if it's something you value and would like to help out, I know that I feel good when I've helped out some various things that I value. So what are some things people can do to help Fangraphs out right now? Yeah, thank you for uh, for the opportunity to do this. Yeah, so the book is Future Value. It's on uh, Triumph Books. You can order it from the publisher or from Amazon. If you know you th- I've said anything interesting during the course of this podcast, then you'll probably enjoy the book. From a Fangraphs perspective, yeah, like there's no baseball to watch or traffic is down. People are not at their desks anymore looking for something to, to dick around and do at work. And so we're competing with, you know, if you want to watch Tiger King now <laughs> rather than do, you know, your file your TPS reports or whatever. So um, our traffic is way, way down. Our ad revenue, which has... Uh, enabled the site to be free for so long uh, is taking it uh, the the commensurate hit, and so we have um, this has always existed at the site, but you know we're pushing now uh, memberships, so you can go to fangraphs.com and uh, the banner at the very top of the webpage has a link where you can become a member member or simply donate. I suggest becoming an ad free member. The site runs so beautifully and and swiftly and cleanly. When there are no ads running on the site, it really does hum like a finely tuned engine. And the, the real the real power of the site, some of the pages that have a ton of data on them, the roster resource pages where you can look at all 30 teams' depth charts, top to bottom, the minor leagues, the whole shebang, those things load with incredible speed when there are no ads. And then all the data on the board, if you're interested in the prospect side of it as well, you know, all of this is manually sourced by me or comes is derived from my opinion. Every field you see on the board, the signing bonuses, the heights, the weights, the, the pitch data stuff, the spin rates and exit velocities that I'm sourcing from teams, all these are manual inputs uh, that our site, uh, you know, it takes, a, it takes a, a tech load to generate. And if you, you know, I'm telling you guys, an ad-free membership is the way to go. Uh, it's 50 bucks a year. And it's, um, yeah, it's keeping the lights on at Fangraphs. And you can, you know, gift memberships or all sorts of options. The merch sales uh, are helpful at this time, too. So go and explore the, the posts by David Appleman you know, at Fangraphs that kind of explain our plight. 
uh, and contribute if you can. I'm doing the same thing too. Like my, I've got local businesses and restaurants that I'm trying to support through this time so that when we can go to them again, like they are there. And Fangraphs is very much in that um, situation where if it is a thing you value, now is the time. Um, we're all hurting, I'm sure, financially. Like it's tough for everybody right now. But if you can throw a few shekels our way, it's it's a huge, huge deal for us. And I sincerely appreciate uh, everyone's consideration and, and you guys for allowing me the opportunity to come on the pod and talk about it. So thank you. Yeah, we can't thank you enough. This is a really good interview and we enjoyed it. I think people are going to get a lot of value out of it. So uh, really, really good. do I'm, appreciate I'm it. Well, I'd be glad to come on again when the Brewers list comes out and talk in depth about that. And then hopefully sometime this summer and fall, we have an opportunity for me to be at a at a backfield and, and come to come to you guys with some fresh dope, even if it's just via text for you to tell your listeners. I I, I hope that that day arrives when um, I can be sunburnt from the, the shadeless Maryvale backfield fields again and come home cursing how dusty those 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 damn backfields are. Man, like my black vans come home dusty every time I I end up at Maryvale. But yeah, I, I long for that now. I'd gladly have to buy a new a new pair of kicks if it meant being at the backfields for on a windy day. Are they still completely shadeless <laughs> even after the uh, the renovations? There's more. There's more now. But yeah, like if you, I knew if I was going to Maryvale uh, for a day that I was either going to leave with a, with a sore ass from sitting on the those metal bleachers, or with a, a burnt nose from being down the line standing. And but now, like, gosh. I I would gladly trade trade that for our global predicament at this point. I I'd, I'd gladly have some smelly zinc oxide on my nose if it meant that everyone was was healthy and we could have baseball, but stay home everyone. We'll get through it. We'll get through it. Well, I just want you to tell me if Antoine Kelly has finally developed a slider. That's all I want. I want you to go down. Uh, <laughs> I I have let me see how many high speed clips I have of Kelly from the AZL. I wasted so much battery trying to capture a pitch other than a fastball at some point during his the AZL start I saw I was just like come on dude like throw something else and then like like a sip of coffee at uh, Appleton and he got lit up because turns out even a great 99 mile per hour fastball isn't going to really show up better hitters so he needs the second pitch but if he does Yeah, he's uh, one of those guys where the gap between what he is and what he might be is so vast. And that's part of what makes some conservative front office types so scared of him uh, and some who are willing to project and dream on that stuff in between. uh, Very, very excited. And so, yeah, his development's going to be very, very interesting. Well, thanks again, Eric. We couldn't thank you enough for coming in and doing this. It's really appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. Be well, both of you, and I'll talk to you again soon. Can't wait.